listening to First Church Charlotte. I am continuing tonight with a series that I did. I started last week, and that is really, to be completely transparent, um, based off of the book that I wrote, Influence, Leading Like Jesus. And so I am, rather than trying to give it to you as an outline, I'm talking through the principles uh, of it and sharing it with you. If you do not have a copy and you would like to have a copy, um, yeah, we have uh, we have copies. Uh, if you have not got that, if you can't afford it, I will give it to you. If you will just give me your best effort to read it. Uh, once I realized that I was walking on a ministry road that would be easily misunderstood, it caused me a, a, a good bit of psychological pain. I'm not the kind of person that enjoys being confrontational. Um, I fight it. I resist it. I, I try to put it off. I don't like being confrontational. Um, and until it's like I, I hate, I'm, I'm not good at it until I cross a threshold and then I can do it as well as anybody uh, within reason. But man, I hate it. And so once I realized that I was walking a road that would be easily misunderstood, and easily uh, mocked and easily accused of any number of things. Um, I wrote a extended love letter to my to the people who could misunderstood what I was trying to do, and that was the form of this book. The manner in which that realization came to me was through a personal prophecy that was given to me by Brother J T Pugh, and he right the last time he preached for us, he asked if I would take him to the airport that was in Greensboro. And he specifically asked for me to do it. And I, of course, agreed to that. You do not tell JTP no. And I did that. And on, on the way to the airport, he talked to me a lot. And at the airport, I was going to walk him in and carry his bags. And he told me, no, I don't want you to. I have a word from the Lord for you. And I want you to sit right here and receive it. And then I'm going to go in and get on the airplane. And again, one does not tell JTP no. And so I, I sat there and uh, kind of trembling inside. And he gave me a personal prophecy that I, I, won't, I won't share uh, in, in any detail with you because I feel like it was very much given to me. Uh, and I just want to say this, that the, the things he told me and the road he told me I would walk and the things he told me that would happen to me as a result of a context that God had placed me in and the difficulties that I would face and the battles I would fight. Um, he basically told me I didn't have to fight them. I could just turn away from them. I could, I could walk away from them. Um, but I would be outside of the gifts that God had given me in the path God had given me to walk. And so that was the first really slap across the face that uh, I would be on a path that could be uh, easily misunderstood and quite easily turned into a dismissive and contemptuous description by people who decided to uh, deal harshly with the the effort that I was trying to make and so from that that was about that was about seven seven years ago, maybe something like that and once I realized that is when I began to realize I needed to try to make a defense of myself, and I felt quite like. Uh, quite like one of the the, the writers of uh, who who's trying to make an account, I 
I, I didn't want to die for nothing. I didn't want to be crucified for nothing. I wanted it to mean something. And so uh, uh, the book was a love letter. And last week we began talking about it and how every, all Christians, all churches wrestle with the idea of uh, mercy and truth, uh, grace and judgment. We, we all of us strive to get that right. There is a point where we should, we should allow a separation to be made between us and people who are too far from us in our spiritual goals or too far from us in our established truth foundations. That, that is real. Uh, there are places where we cannot walk together, but uh, I often have seen People divide over things that are certainly not biblical reasons to divide. And I, I have seen many churches split over things that were not uh, necessary for uh, any biblical judgment on what fellowship should be. And I, through the years that I was exposed to these various things, uh, I saw what I came to call spiritual butchery. Uh, that is where we, we divide and we cut each other up, and we saw asunder, and we split one from another over things that appeal to our ego but do not have the necessary weight theologically to justify all of the bloodletting that we have done in the name of truth. And so I wanted to rightly judge that, and I wanted to carefully adjudicate that in my own heart. And so I, of course recognizing that there must be grace and that there must be truth. And the only one who can truly reconcile that is Jesus Christ. You and I will never know the heart of the person we are criticizing. That makes it dangerous for us to be too liberal with criticism. We do not know their heart. We do not know where they came from. We do not know how it feels to be them. And so if we are... If we are reckless or we are in some way intemperate with, with truth, we end up being judgmental in an area where we should have had no opinion or we end up being dismissive and condescending in an area where we should have shown grace and mercy. <coughs> uh, I got sick Sunday and... By Sunday night, I had no voice whatsoever. I mean, it was like a cartoon. I, I, it's like my lips were moving, but no sound was coming out. And I have been quite sick the last two days. Uh, so if my voice exits at any stage, um, I warned you. <laughs> so uh, we, we want to understand that God's the only one who can judge the heart. And we as followers of Jesus Christ, we as Deeply passionate people pursuing the kingdom of heaven, not just our individual salvation, but the kingdom of heaven, the work of heaven, the call of God upon each one of our life. Let me say it this way. You have a ministry. You have a calling. You have a spiritual context. You have a, a difference you could make in your world if you would. And the spirit of the Lord will draw you as a worker into a field of harvest, into an arena of ministry where you can do the work of an intercessor. Someone else benefits from the burden you carry. Someone else is strengthened from the spiritual battle that you wage. You are not simply focused on yourself. You are looking to the harvest field in which God has placed you. So uh, we, admitting that, we, 
must be honest and say there is a time when we should separate from someone. Uh, But we should be very careful about that because mercy is one of the only subjects in the Bible where the Lord judges us as we judge others. Mercy is one of the only passages where... um, we are cautioned and cautioned again that the same measure with which we are meeting out mercy, grace, acceptance, and uh, long-suffering kindness one to another, it will be measured out us to, uh, again to us. In fact, this principle is so, this principle is so powerful that uh, there was a, a place in the Gospels, and of course all of this, as I've mentioned, is in my book, but place in the Gospels where Peter and the other disciples want to know when do we have to stop forgiving people? When, when should we just, you know, stop forgiving people? And um, Jesus, Jesus answers and actually uses the term that if you go to them and they will not receive you, then you can, retreat, you can treat them like a publican or a, a Gentile. And the irony of that is the book that you're reading this from, Matthew, is written by a publican. And Jesus came to save Gentiles. And so you think, I finally have good cause to be judge, judgmental with other people. And so Jesus says, I can treat him like a publican and a Gentile. He's totally missing the irony of the fact that the book is being written by a publican, Matthew. And uh, Jesus is going to die to save the Gentiles. And then Jesus tells them a story. And at this moment is where we really miss the story. Because the story Jesus tells is the story of the individual who was forgiven a great great treasure by the his lord forgave him a great but then walking out he saw a servant who owed him just a a few bucks and he beat the servant up and cast him in debtor's prison now it, it shouldn't isn't jesus telling the wrong story here i mean didn't peter just say when do i get to be harsh with other people and not forgive them and treat them like a publican and a sinner Jesus, shouldn't you tell the story about the time that uh, Brother Anthony did me wrong, and so I got uh, some witnesses, I got Brother Jeff, and I got uh, Brother Adam, and we came together, and I made appeal to him. Shouldn't that be the story you should be telling us, Jesus? And Jesus totally ignores what we think he should be doing. He tells us a different story, and this is the story. You were forgiven a massive amount that you cannot repay, and then you're going to go hold a few bucks against somebody else? And when the Lord heard of it, he was wroth with his servant. And he called him in and said, now, wait a minute, let me get this straight. I forgave you millions, and you went out and threw that poor soul into prison over a few bucks? But Jesus, you're telling the wrong story. The story you should be telling is about the, the two witnesses, and then we get to treat Brother Anthony like he's a publican and a sinner. Or a Gentile. We know he's a Gentile and a sinner, and uh, he's not smart enough to be a publican. <laughs> Just cutting that up. Do you see? Do you see how deeply embedded this this need for us to be merciful to others, this need for us to extend grace to others? So, uh, how did Jesus teach? If we're gonna if we're gonna look at the the story of Jesus Christ, how did he teach? This deeply matters to me because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the express image of God. Think about that. Jesus is the express image of our God. Jesus said this, um, when you have seen me, 
you have seen the Father. Now, I know we typically use that in when we're arguing, arguing um, certain theological positions. But what I want you to see is that this is more than just uh, the, 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 the tool we always use. When you see Jesus, you are seeing God's heart. You are seeing the manifestation of God, the express image of his of, of his person, the, 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 the glory of God manifest in Jesus Christ. So I want to look at how he taught. When people begin to develop a closed church culture, that the church primarily exists to take the saved people deep, um, they're, not, they're not wrong. That's just that's part of the story. Part of the story is taking saved people deep into discipleship, but that's just part of the story. There's also the story of taking the gospel wide to whosoever will. This is important. Now, a church cultures can begin to tend one way or the other where we take a small group of people deep into discipleship and we in some way perfect them through lots of effort. <coughs> I, would, I should say perfection is an illusion, but as humans, we are experts at illusion. And so um, we, we kind of perfect them or we take the gospel wide to whosoever will. The truth is there's, there should not be one against the other. The, the, the truth is it should be both, but at various stages of discipleship. Uh, this whole idea is built, as you know, upon seven levels of discipleship, which we'll get to uh, probably next week or the week after next, to understand these seven levels of discipleship. There is the level that is wide, and there is the levels that go deep. As representatives of the heart of God, what we can often do is misunderstand who should be deep and who should be, how should we should be patient with the wide spread of the gospel and how we should allow people to pursue uh, as their heart motivates them and as their passion for the things of God is awoken within them, how they go deep in the spirit. So I want to point out a few things about Jesus. Jesus taught in an astonishing way. And the people said that no one spoke like him. Now, what's interesting about this is that they all are in a religious context. They have grown up surrounded by synagogues. The house of Israel is very religious. They have grown up in a religious culture and society that is way more than ours. Uh, I know we're in the Bible belt here, but their religious society was way more than ours. They put us to shame. Uh, They grew up with a certain sound of a rabbi teaching. They grew up with a certain style of organized um, worship and sacrifice at the temple. And then Jesus came and he just, it shocked him, shocked them all how, how he taught. Very quickly, I want to give you some, some of the ways, <coughs> excuse me, I want to give you some of the ways that Jesus taught. Number one, these are six uh, methods that Jesus taught by. Number one, Jesus told stories. You guys know that. We call them parable. Uh, Jesus shocked people with using statements of hyperbole, 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 where you speak beyond. I almost had a tongue's interpretation there for a moment. Where you speak beyond the expectation as a way of making a point. Um, He would do that. He would make outrageous 
Examples that forced you to think, if your eye offend thee, pluck it out. There's not one example of any disciple of Jesus plucking out their eye. Not one. Not particularly in this time. Maybe you can find something in the crazy Middle Ages. There's not one example, but Jesus said that. Uh, If your hand offend thee, cut it off. Now, not one of the disciples did that. Why? Because he is speaking in a style of rhetoric recognized at the time to force you to think. There is no teaching that Jesus does that is, a, is formulaic where you don't have to think, you only have to obey. And yet, that is in many churches the style, the culture, where you're not supposed to think, you're just supposed to obey. The thinking has all been done, child, just show up and do what I say. I've been in churches that felt like that, and although that is somewhat of a... Uh, overgeneralization of those churches, just as a quick response, it often felt like that. And uh, when I went to Bible school, I, I had not been raised in a church like that. In fact, uh, my dad oftentimes encouraged me to get into conversations with them. He would give me a book to read as an assignment, and then we would talk about it. I went to Bible school, and uh, there were people that thought I was a rebel heart. Uh, I, had, I had people who, they didn't grow up in a, you did not question they were intellectually dominated, and the only thing you were allowed is obedience. That was not the style of Jesus' teaching. He told a story, and then he didn't give you an interpretation. Did lots of people misunderstand? Yes. Did it seem to bother Jesus? No. He made you think. You see, here's the point. This doesn't make sense if your religion is a stack of formulas. It makes perfect sense if your religion is a relationship with God. Should I say that again or you get the point? A stack of formulas is not a relationship. Now, I'm not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying it will never replace the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you will spend time with him, you will steal your heart enough to perceive that he speaks to those that he loves. And his sheep know his voice. Do you see? And so it's not enough. Uh, if, if, if the way that spiritual teaching is supposed to be done is us, you're given a stack of formulas and you're told, do not think, only obey. I'm telling you, you have not read the Gospels because Jesus is very comfortable making you think by stories, by using exaggeration as a point to make you think. Number three, Jesus crafted memorable statements like judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. That's a memorable statement. Luke chapter number six. Number four, Jesus loved to ask questions. This is uh, probably the most dominating um, takeaway from just reading. If you just read the words he spoke, he asked over he asked over three hundred questions. Um, and he only answered about 60. So he is asking a multiple of questions for everyone that he is answering. Most of us do not use that as an evangelism style. We kind of swagger through our harvest fields and we tell people what they ought to think about things we think they should care about. And then we're shocked when they're not interested. Jesus is very comfortable asking questions. One of the things that I, uh, Don and I were exposed to at uh, the outreach conference was an organization called, um, I think it's called Alpha, and they host 
meetings where everybody gets to talk. And if you don't have to be a believer to talk, you get to talk about what you think. And they listen to people and they characterize themselves by asking questions and by a radical hospitality. And they had some amazing stories to tell because here is a shocking reality. 80% of millennials want to have spiritual conversations, 80% when they're interviewed. 80% of millennials want to have spiritual conversations, but only about 20% of that, or maybe it was in the teens percent of that, trusts the church to have the conversation with. That's a, that's a, that, because they won't be listened to, they say. You won't listen. You won't care what they think. You'll just, you'll just rebuke them and tell them what they should be thinking. 80% of millennials want to have spiritual conversations, and they will have them once they feel like they can trust you to listen to what they think. Well, that should, that should uh, remind us of, a, uh, of something that I think is somewhat interesting. Jesus' teaching style would have been particularly effective with the millennials. He asked many more questions than he answered. Number five, Jesus used object lessons. And number six, Jesus used repetition where he repeated things over and over again. And so if he is teaching and he explains a truth, he tells a story, he illustrates something about the kingdom of heaven, but then he does not tell you what to think about it. He simply lets you wrestle with it. You see, out of your heart, out of the inner being is going to come this desire for the things of God, this, this desire to know more. He is simply going to place something before you and allow you to progress toward it or back away from it. Why will this work is because he is teaching with a deep sense of theological and discipleship levels. Uh, everybody is not going to respond at the same level at the same time of their life. Let me talk about this a little bit. Um, it's very normal for people as they go through seasons of their life to go through different stages of spiritual interest. Now, this is true of all of you, um, whether or not you admit it or not. Um, I, it's been my observation as a pastor to see people at different stages of their life have different levels of spiritual interest. And they, without perhaps intending to, uh, they find that at certain seasons of their life, they are highly prone to living uh, according to the lusts of the flesh, say. Uh, Then there's other seasons of their life where they are highly prone to um, pride. There's other seasons of their life where they're they're more inclined toward pride. Uh, living immodestly, and I don't just mean in appearance, I just mean in the choices they make. Um, It is a rare and blessed young person who can maintain deep spiritual passion through the single university years of their life. I am usually quite happy if they will just keep trudging along and fighting for their faith in coming into the church. Because what I know is that once they find the, uh, that, that, that life mate who kind of makes them whole, um, they, are, they, they are going to, interestingly, having been finished this season of their life, they're going to have an attention um, deficit. It's like so much of their focus is on uh, college, career, dating, boyfriends, girlfriends, etc., etc. And then these things start to get solved. All of a sudden, they have this budget open up, and they begin. Be- you'll see them coming back into a relationship with God, and they kind of grew sketchy. 
How many of you know what I'm talking about? Don't look at me like I'm crazy. Now, we right now in our church are blessed because we have a quite active uh, and quite spiritual group of young adults uh, who are a testimony to how God can keep you through all the ups and downs of, of, of college years and single years. Can I have a big amen? But these seasons are natural. Now, if we create a church culture where the moment you kind of slip with uh, one, two, four, or seven of our formula stack, if you slip of those, you, are, you come to church and experience shame. What tends to happen is those people quit coming to church. Because whether or not you or I think their life is in some way worthy of shame... To them, it, feel like, it feels like they're doing the best they can. Do you see what just happened there? To you, you've got all of these things organized or not, depending. And to you, you say they're making this mistake and that mistake. And bless God, look at our formula stack and these things should not be acceptable. And you say, we should blah, blah, blah. Brother Nate should straighten them out. Brother Nate. And to you, and maybe you're right, time will judge all of that. But the point is, I mean, I'm going to stand before God too, just like all of you. And um, I'm, he's going to tell me exactly what he thinks about how I'm doing. Okay. Okay, this is, um, we believe this, all right? So, um, uh, but, but they're, to them it feels like they're doing their absolute best. And they struggled in the church and what you gave them or uh, somebody gave them was shame. And they were doing their best. And then we wonder why they don't come back or they go to one of the churches that won't give them shame. We want to be a life-giving church. We don't speak death to people. We speak life to people. We speak hope to people. We know you're not doing everything you ought to be doing. Uh, Not just that age group, but a lot of this other age group. Some of you guys out there know you're not doing as good as you should, but you're sitting in church all fancy-fied, acting like you're so saved, you shame the devil. I'm telling you, some of you aren't doing everything right, but I'm speaking life into you right now. And I'm saying God loves you. You are his child. Does that make sense? God loves you. You are his child. Yes, that has been a struggle and that has been a battle, but the story is not done. So Jesus' ministry is astonishing to the people because he is comfortable with whether or not they misunderstand him. He doesn't give them formulas. He challenges them to examine their heart. This is not how the Pharisees taught. This is not how the scribes taught. They had turned all the great principled teachings of the Old Old Testament into a formula stack. You can, you can't. You can, you can't. You can, you can't. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Do that. You, there was no need to examine your heart. In fact, your heart could be filled with wickedness. But as long as your formula stack was right, you were in like Flynn. Because they ended up not with a deep passion for the presence of God, standing before him spiritually vulnerable and naked, but they developed this sense of whether or not they were approved of one with another. And so there came this huge culture clash between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of uh, the, the house of Israel, the, the priests, the scribes, the teachers, uh, the Pharisees, and whatnot. Jesus would expound a truth. 
And then he would allow a, the listener to decide what to do with it. Not just whether or not they believed it, but at what level they would follow. At what level they would implement. Uh, he would not just lead, allow the crowds to decide. He would allow the, the generations to decide. And this is dangerous as any communicator knows. Because meaning is the end of the matter. Words are just tools. They're just, they're just, they're just tools. It's the meaning that matters. But Jesus taught as though you should wrestle with how you're going to please God. Jesus taught as though the, a, a simple formula was not going to be enough if you wanted to know God. You're going to have to pursue his presence. You're going to have to ask soul-searching questions like this. What does it profit me if I gain everything of this world, but at the end of the day I lose my soul? That's not a formula, you know. Go to church twice a week, you know, support the temple, uh, make sure you tithe on your herbs and spices, and you're good. No, that's not a formula. This is a deep searching. Now, this can be upsetting to somebody who doesn't want to think, and they don't want to pray. They just want a reassurance. That is religion as pacifier. And religion as pacifier is very, very much uh, the way of human religious history the lord's call disturbs you it troubles you what he he makes you consider your heart he makes you consider and then he points out the righteousness of the pharisees and says don't let it be like that don't do it where people can see it do it in private and your father who is in heaven will see your heart this obviously caused problems. But I, I want to say that we should have some sympathy for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Um, after all, <clears throat> just if you listen as a critic, it's easy to, to think that um, people, it's dangerous to let people wrestle with truth because they may not end up at the same place you do. Uh, you may feel like the line is here, and they may feel like the line is he there. And you might have to accept people you disagree with, and that's dangerous because we don't really want to accept anybody who has a different point of view than we do. That's, that's, it takes a little bit of self-discipline to do that. Um, but Jesus, uh, he's quite comfortable just putting it out there and letting you find your level. He doesn't tell you your level. He gives you truth, and he lets you find your level. And at different seasons of your life, you may find different levels. In other words, to know him, you're going to have to seek. You're going to have to ask. You're going to have to knock. And these themes are going to be repeated. And these images are not just in the teaching of Jesus, but they're all the way through the Old Testament where Abraham is looking for a city. He's seeking a city. Uh, Jesus never, not one statement of Jesus's is designed to control his followers. Not one. Every statement that Jesus makes would be frustrating to a Pharisee who simply wants a formula stack that they can enforce and then elevate their value by publicly following and regulate other people's value by judging whether or not they have followed. Jesus will not speak like a Pharisee. He will not speak like a rabbi. He simply invites. He places truth. He speaks truth. 
truth. He asks the question that forces you to say, wait a minute, how am I really doing? He asks you the question that is troublesome to the habit we all have of lying to ourselves. And his truth cuts through the lies. And it makes us look at our heart and wonder, where exactly are we before God? Now, the, the, in the defense of the religious teachers of, of Jesus' day, they would say, Look, Jesus, I, I, know what, I know you mean well by asking people to think about things. I know you mean well, but here's the thing. People don't want to think about things, and, and, and they're simple people, and they don't need to wrestle with it. They, just, they need to be told what to do. Um, they don't need to wrestle with what to do. Jesus, I, I know you mean well. Lucky for you, you have me, and I can save you. Um, what we need to do is, um, when simple people just need to be told. And so don't ask them to examine their heart. Don't ask them to wrestle with truth. Don't ask them to figure out what they are going to do in response because they're simple. And we can't trust simple people with deep truths. Let's decide. Let's make up a handy little list. And let's just give them so they don't have to think. But what if Jesus teaches this way because the pursuit of God and the pursuit of truth is necessary, not just in some way a byproduct? What if it's necessary? What if the point of it all was for you to pursue his presence? Jesus would not be swayed from this to teach more like the rabbis and more like the Pharisees. He would not take truth and turn it into a handy little list for people. He would always present the truth for them to weigh and to wrestle with. And it always had a function of them looking at their heart, considering their heart. Where were they and what did they need to do? And... You can imagine the difficulty of this, and uh, this style of religion is as old as human religion, um, Two assumptions of traditional human religions is, <clears throat> number one, people cannot be trusted with God. They're not prepared to consider the deep truth. They just need to be told what to do. And the second one is God cannot be trusted with people. And that is why you have to give these people this protection of just do this, this, this. We need to draw this and we need to define this because God can't be trusted with you. He doesn't know you're simple. And if you don't get something right, he'll just you know hit you in the head with a hammer. Um, Jesus ignores both of these. He ignores both of these. Um, he, he ignores these founding assumptions of the human religious tradition. He taught as though people, he taught as though people could and should be trusted to know God and that they should and they could pursue God's kingdom. He taught as though God could understand the, 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 the simplicity, the folly, and the misunderstandings of ordinary people. Jesus taught as though uh, rule-based communities could be dangerous. He taught as though that meaning well they could miscarry justice in the name of rules. He taught as though their rules could be shaped to serve the religion and not shaped to direct you to pursue God. Uh, He taught as though control communities while they made everyone feel safe. And through conformity, they reassured everyone. Those same communities um, could be in some way 
misshapen enough where they serve themselves. And at the end of the day, they are not directing people to pursue, to seek, to ask, and to knock. And so this, this, this really upset the religious teaching of the time. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes, elders, they perceived the t- teaching of Jesus as a great threat. So they killed him. This was not at all unexpected. They had been killing the prophets for some generations. And if you look back through all of these prophets, you will find one consistent theme, and that is this. None of these prophets gave simple formulas to add to the stack. Do this, don't do that, do this. All of them challenged you to look at your heart and say, how am I really doing? Do I really know him? Do I really walk with him? Or do I just have a checkbox on my spiritual spreadsheet? Am I really pursuing him? If we're going to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not going to happen through uh, simple obedience. You have to seek to have a personal relationship with him. You need to set aside time of your life. You need to organize your life. You need to dedicate yourself. You need to seek after him. And if you seek after him, you will find him. Can I have a big amen? Amen. (coughs) So, Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry can only be described as spiritual influence because he sought to control no one. Even his disciples were given no standing system, no standing formula, no standing uh, rule type, none of of them. Uh, Even when they were misunderstanding and they threatened to leave, even then, even then Jesus simply turned to them and said, "Uh, would you guys like to go away? I won't keep you. And Peter said, where would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of everlasting life. Admittedly, we don't understand. And admittedly, you shocked us by offending us with a prohibition that is given to us through God, through the law of Moses, by the image of us drinking your blood and eating your flesh. But honestly, besides that offense, we have nowhere else to go. So we're staying with you. Uh, The issue of control versus influence is deeply, deeply at the heart of all church culture. Um, We we cannot organize for growth and also organize for control. Uh, You get one. (laughs) You can organize for control, you can, uh, or you can organize for growth. There's not one religious awakening in all the history of the Bible where there is a control sense, a control element. It very much is the opposite where the spirit, we're given the image of the spirit blowing like the wind. And we're given the image over and over. And again, I don't have time to go through this, but there is so much. The Bible's so rich in this. There's image and image. Revival coming through people who they would have never expected it coming through. Healings coming to people they would have never thought were worthy of the healings. Grace given to people that were shameful. You know, it's one thing for us to talk about, oh, we're going to go down and we're going to preach the gospel to the sinner and we're going to, we're going to teach home Bible study to a prostitute. That's one thing for us to say. In 
Jesus' time, it's something else. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. Because Jesus had no problem with sinners. You will not find a single place where Jesus speaks harshly to a sinner. Not a single place where Jesus speaks harshly to a sinner. But oh, how he could not get along with church people. Oh, how he could not stand church people. Or temple people, I should say. You get the idea. You know what I mean. And so as a church, as a leader, I deeply feel that if Jesus is the image of God, and Jesus is, if he's the heart of God, if, if he is the Savior that was within the nature of God from the very beginning, if God was always going to fix the mess we made because of sin. That's the only way the cross can be at the very foundation of the world. God was always going to fix this mess. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you for God so loved the world that he gave his only. God was always going to fix it. He was always going to fix it. He was always going to fix it. If that is what you see in Jesus, then as a church, the only way we can manifest in some way, and this is my deep personal conviction, the only way we can manifest a church that is wide in grace and deep in discipleship is allowing people to self-select the level of their consecration, the level of their commitment, the level of their dedication. That is why you have to understand the seven levels of discipleship that are manifest in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is not original with me. I first heard this taught when I was uh, about 11 years old, sitting on the front row of a small church about four miles away over on Howie Circle. And I sat on the front row, and in the manner of a nerd, I was bored with the praise and worship, but I loved the teaching. And David F. Gray came and taught for us. We were a small church. It was a, it was a Wednesday night, if I remember correctly. correctly. No, I take that back. It was a Thursday night. Back then, we had midweek service on Thursday night. And it was a Thursday night, and uh, he taught to a group of about 35 people. Um, so like just this group right here. Um, he taught... Uh, seven levels of discipleship for some reason as an 11 year old boy that stuck in my head and the whole of my life I have remembered him teaching seven levels of discipleship and so when I begin the process and I'm almost done you can come play bro Um, when I begin the process of trying to understand how how uh, we 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 in some manner should structure the feel of church culture that would be true to the heart of God that would be true to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, I had been seated as an 11 year old boy with all the understanding that I would need uh, from the teaching of David F. Gray, where he taught seven levels of discipleship on Howie Circle to an 11 year old boy. And no one else there that night remembered it, including my dad. Now, if you're watching this online, Dad, I'm sorry. We'll have to argue about this later, but I think he forgot it. But I remember, and that has become the issue of if we try to organize church culture for control, that's us deciding where you should be, not allowing you to vote with your feet on where you should be. And so how we, how we settle this issue ultimately becomes an issue of grace and truth. 
uh, it's the same thing of control versus influence. How we discipline church members, the culture that develops within our congregation, the tone of our preaching. Control versus influence is often the culture war that sparks between church members. And this group, they want to be more conservative, and this group wants to be more liberal, but none of them want to love each other. <laughs> because then they'll be a reconciled church. Reconciled is where you, uh, you see the good in people who are different than you. Um, to be a reconciled church is to have the, the people who wish the church were this way see the good in people who wish the church were this way and speak life one to another and prefer one another and include one another. But uh, that's so hard. It goes against the flesh. Fighting over whether or not the church should be more this way or more that way, well, that's just an act of human carnality because conflict and war is deeply bred in the human condition. Remember, not sooner than they sin, than Cain kills Abel. Why? He disagrees with the offering he made to God. Killing your brother over a spiritual religious disagreement is as old as the story of humanity. But in Jesus Christ... We're reconciled one to another. And so, should we minister as a pastoral team? Should we minister with the open hand of influence or the close fist of control? We can disagree, but I would remind you of this. There was only one who ever lived, who ever had the power to control anything. For the rest of us, control is, is an illusion. We can't even control ourselves. How's your diet going? I know, Paula, mine's terrible too. It's a true tragedy. I just killed the spirit that fast. Y'all don't know Paula. Y'all know, you know Paula. She's good people. We, we don't even have self-control. How is your management of fear going? How is your management of doubt going? We don't have control of ourselves, but we want to control other people. There was only one who ever lived who had the power of control. And that was Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh. And what did this one do as a demonstration of love? He laid his power down. And he says... No man takes my life. I lay it down. What kind of church should we be? How should our services feel? How should our... They shouldn't feel like control. They should feel like an act of spiritual invitation has been made. And you are always being beckoned to a deeper place in the presence of God. You may have had a good week. You may have had a bad week. But in this house, there's more than you could ever imagine in the presence of God. You may be at your spiritual zenith. You may be dragging the bottom. You may be like the chariots of Pharaoh that drave heavily across the bottom of the Red Sea. But there's more. And the Spirit is calling you. And the Spirit is challenging you. We, I would say, if we're going to be like Jesus, are going to have a ministry of influence. We're going to have a ministry of invitation. 
we're going to have no problem with sin. There's going, there's an antidote for sin. And we should only have problems who would keep, problems with people who would keep sinners away. That's to be like Jesus. <laughs> no, I don't want to have problems with anybody. But a ministry of influence is a ministry where there is consistent, continual spiritual invitation to take the next step. To pray another night shift to seek another another open door to love with God's love and allow that person to hear consider respond decide all the while because we are made complete in God we do not need our value to be determined on what they do And we do not need our security to be in any way threatened by what they do or they don't do. You are complete in Him. In the meantime, we are salt and we are light. And that's what I believe is the closest we can become. And we're always going to fail. I'm going to fail. That's as close as we can come to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's all stand. How are we doing on time? We we have a let's take let's take three minutes and step out of the chair we're in right now. I'd like you to come down to the front. And since I've been talking about this so much tonight, as you come, I would like you to do exactly what the ministry of Jesus invites you to do. I'd like you to consider your heart. I'd like you to stand in his presence and just say, Lord, I, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to I want to please you. Would you just in your own way, would you do that right now all, all across the house? Lord Jesus, I, I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I don't want to just hide behind a, a stack of, of formulas, Lord. I, I want a relationship with you. I believe you can hear me when I pray. And I believe I can hear your voice. And I, I believe that if my heart is right and I represent your people, represent your sheep then I will know your voice and I will respond to that oh Lord Jesus we're so hungry to walk with you we're so hungry to please you in Jesus name in Jesus name in Jesus name in Jesus name thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte if this podcast has blessed you please rate it with four stars by doing so you will help others find it and also bless them If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times and church ministries, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.